What's up, everybody? This is another episode of Not a Health Guru, a podcast on health disparities, health policies, promotions, and issues from a sociological perspective. I am Tamara Bowen, your host, engineer, and producer of the podcast. My position is that knowledge has to transcend the immediate political reality for one purpose, for the purpose of transforming, for the purpose of setting the stage for the elimination of human suffering and misery. It's been a minute since I've been able to produce an episode. This was my toughest semester of my undergrad degree. And I was working in a rural health clinic. And I'm still doing a research study with my professor. So I have a lot on my plate. But I love NAG. So that's why I'm here again. Um, If you've noticed that NAG has been away, I really appreciate you for even noticing. It really means a lot to me. Um... And if you're joining us live via video, welcome. This is my first time doing it. I'm very excited to utilize this platform. I have a lot of visual data and statistics and just nice images that goes along with what I'm telling you today. And I'm just super excited to release this content to the world. Um, so, yeah, this episode is going to be about three historical housing policies and how they are discriminatory and how they have influenced the health and the health disparities that we see today. In the last episode, I did explain social determinants of health and health disparities. If you're unfamiliar with those terms, or if you just haven't heard the episode, I definitely suggest that you go give that guy a listen. It's about 10 minutes short. It's one of my shortest episodes. So um, listen, back in July, it's November. It's December now, actually. (laughs) In July, when I decided to do an episode on housing policies, I tell you that God was dropping a lot of inspiration and information like everywhere. I even had a dream that I was a housing activist back in the 70s. So I'm just excited to release this information in this episode to the world. You give me second class houses and second class schools. Do you think that all colored folks are just second class fools, Mr. Backline? The first policy is redlining. Um, We see this in the 1930s and, well, throughout the 1930s, actually. And uh, basically what happened was it made housing, quality housing especially, unattainable for black people. And you'll see that your federal government of the U.S. actually funded Homeowners Loan Corporation, which created these residential security maps. And you'll see the maps that there are three colors. There's green, there's yellow, and there's red. The green areas were the white areas, and the red areas were the black areas and basically they labeled the black areas undesirable and um, that's where you get the term redlining from is because black areas were lined out in red (laughs) Uh, telling bankers um, anyone that helps people get housing to not uh, distribute their services to these areas so we were denied housing loans mortgages just housing opportunities in general while of course you see that the great the the great areas the green areas um, were had increased housing opportunities so increased housing mortgages and loans and just better housing quality by the way and so when our neighborhoods were desired were labeled undesirable literally um we saw a disinvestment in our neighborhoods keyword for redlining is disinvestment as far as i'm concerned we see a disinvestment in funding of education a disinvestment into quality Um, housing, a disinvestment in uh, quality foods in our neighborhoods, and a disinvestment in our economic opportunities. 
But in 1968, the Fair Housing Act comes along and basically says that it is illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender, uh, race, um, sex. It's, it's illegal to discriminate, to deny housing on that basis, right? But I hate to tell you this, about five years later, your president, Donald Trump, was manager of manager and owner of a housing opportun- uh, housing entity called Trump Management in New York. And basically, they were found to be discriminating still on uh, blacks and Puerto Ricans by denying them housing opportunities into their into their housing units. Um, so unfortunately, even five years after the fa- the Fair Housing Act made it illegal. We can vote on Tim come on. Do you know something? As long as you are Puerto Rican, as long as you are Negro, as long as you are welfare, they don't give a goddamn. We still see it today. Redlining is still a practice that is today, and it's not called redlining anymore, but it's still intertwined in policy today. So how does this institutionally and the structurally racist practice of denying housing, um, which is a basic necessity, denying it to black people, how does that affect our health? And how does disinvestment in our neighborhoods affect our health? So we went from denial of quality housing to neighborhood disinvestments and thus housing deterioration um, housing quality deterioration, that is. And this has went on for about 30 plus years. And in the midst of that, we arrive at the Urban Renewal Act of 1949, which lasted throughout the 60s. Now, urban renewal is here to renew those uh, blighted or slummed areas, but not exactly how you think. And I do air quotes when I say slum and blighted because, first of all, it's, it's just disrespectful to call someone a house a slum or a blighted. And some of these areas, after doing my research, were not actually slums or blighted areas. They just were black. <laughs> and so they were labeled as such. So the whole plan with urban renewal or development, as the black residents were told, uh, was to take our neighborhoods with both standard and substandard housing and renew them. Renew them. That doesn't sound too bad, though, right? Previously disinvested neighborhoods are now going to receive investment. Hmm, not too bad. But that's not exactly what happened course you should know that by now our neighborhoods were replaced with economic developments um that were for public use so we have shopping centers um parking decks that we see today and a lot a vast majority of the highways that we see today were a result of um urban renewal the government is actually able to do this with the fifth amendment under eminent domain they're able to take your private property your private house into compensate you for it and use it for public use urban renewal is referred to as negro removal purposefully because at the time the 1960s when it came into action we were 10 percent of the population but 66 percent of the areas that were supposed to be a part of this urban renewal were black areas so our homes weren't returned to us though and they weren't renewed we were removed from our homes and forced by financial restraints and uh, residentially segregating laws to move into racially segregated ghettos, which were notoriously low quality and notoriously unsafe. Um, and as I said, it, black residents were under the impression that our homes would be returned to us after the renewal, but instead our homes were bulldozed and turned into, say, I-20 in Atlanta. And if you have been in Atlanta, the Georgia Dome is a very prominent example of uh, um, the outcome of urban renewal. 
And um, if you've been through downtown Birmingham, you'll see Interstate 280 that's traveling throughout downtown Birmingham. That is an, another product of urban renewal where we want were once housed and now are now it's highways and stadiums and schools and universities and things of that nature. Um, so how does this affect our health? <laughs> how is our health affected when we have low quality housing conditions and displaced and segregated people with disrupted neighborhoods and disrupted social connections? Or what about the living conditions that we were forced to live in, terribly and unpromising economic developments and as a result, crime? So in terms of social health, what message does that send? The message that our homes are not valuable, lest they be turned into stadiums or interstates for public use. So urban renewal lasted into the 60s, and we were displaced into more segregated places with concentrated crime. The sequence of events, the sequence of policies um, that have affected our health today. I find it no coincidence that 10 years after urban renewal, when we were displaced into ghettos that were riddled with crime and poor economic conditions that we see that the, that we see the war on drugs and um the war on drugs if you don't know heavily imprisoned heavily incriminated the black population and other minorities then we see this next policy that i'm going to talk about next that is established in the 90s the policy of crime-free housing ordinances which i guess it's safe to say specifically targeted the black population <laughs> Because at the time, now we are 13% of the population and um, 34% of the prison population. And so crime-free housing ordinances, basically what they do is they either allow or require landlords to deny housing or evict current tenants on the basis of a degree of criminal record. So something like a misdemeanor or if you're already a tenant and you accrue a, a ticket, you could be evicted on that basis. Um, so Deborah Archer, who is a very pronounced and well-respected researcher of this policy, stated that this policy is actually a remnant of Jim Crow laws today. And if you're here with me, if you're listening to this episode, it's 2020 or maybe after 2020. And I just mentioned that we see Jim Crow laws, remnants of it in housing policies today. Jim Crow laws, by the way, were the laws that continually segregated blacks and whites. So you'll see whites only can be served here or black only water fountain, things like that. I would be amiss to not directly quote um, Deborah Archer's statement on how Jim Crow laws are present in, in this policy today. So I quote, landlords make decisions on the basis of tenants' contacts with the criminal legal system. These policies treat applicants and tenants as suspects, blurring the lines between housing determinations and pol policing. The embrace of exile and exclusion was also evident in Jim Crow policies around the country where white people created white-only spaces such as schools, neighborhoods, parks, and restaurants. By creating and perpetuating narratives of black criminality that justified the exclusion of black people. I've read this quote many times now and it hits different every time. It's, it is disheartening and crazy actually to see that. So the purpose of this policy, by the way, was to limit crime in an area as if criminality is a personality trait and not a byproduct of poverty and destitute economic conditions. So progressing into this episode, 
in intersecting policy and and health today, health disparities. How does crime-free housing ordinances affect our health? How does being denied on the basis of a criminal record affect our livelihood? What about the convict who's released from prison and needs to start their life over and doing so needs to attain housing? How does that affect recidivism? How does that affect your chance of attaining housing in the future? Or, I mean, would that not interfere with employment opportunities, which affects every aspect of your health? So essentially what we're looking at is structural and systemic racism cloaked in policies that promote segregation, which by the way is called de jure segregation, um, meaning, in other words, segregation as a result of public policy or law. We know that term, but what do we call it when policy directly influences health disparities? How does segregation affect our health? Well, remember minutes ago when I said that redlining resulted in neighborhood disinvestment of black communities? Well, this affected our health <laughs> in many ways. So I'm going to juxtapose a 1930s residential security map of Atlanta with a prevalence of a map of prevalence of asthma in, that, in those same areas today. And if you do the research, you'll see there's an undeniable correlation between redlined areas and health disparities in those same areas today. But why? Why? why how? How can this be the case? This is more so a, um, a result of environmental inequality that affects our health. So specifically um, in underfunded and black communities, there is a higher concentration of polluting factories such as hazardous waste sites or coal factories, things of that nature, are mostly in our areas. And this affects our health. I mean, we're breathing in these, we're breathing directly in this pollution. In fact, when I was a kid in Birmingham, that's where I'm from, Birmingham, Alabama, when I was a kid, I developed asthma. And I remember how scary it was for me. And I was the only kid in my family that needed an inhaler. I was the only kid in my family um, that had difficulty breathing. When I got older and I learned that there was a correlation between where you live and how you um, experience health, I did research with uh, Google Maps. I just researched the number of factories that were in that same vicinity that I lived in as a child, and I found there were over five polluting factories near me. So redlining definitely produced great health disparities, and asthma is just one of those. I mean... Even outside of the wealth and home ownership gap um, that is created by redlining, which I won't even get into, various research displays that redlining does, in fact, um, influence health disparities. So think about it. If quality of housing opportunities are denied to black people, if neighborhoods are labeled unsafe or undesirable, rather, and funding for education decreases and economic opportunities decrease, grocery stores decrease in carrying fresh and healthy foods how does how do we not experience health differently so when considering policies like urban renewal or eviction or even gentrification itself um you have to think about the various aspects of your health that is affected research consistently proves that um housing displacement results in physical mental um an emotional dysfunction, behavioral dysfunction. Can you imagine how stressful it is to be told that you have to leave the place that you call home? What kind of impact that has on your health? 
And then not only that you have to leave home, but you have to move into an area that you don't feel comfortable in. You can't live safely in. How is that? How does that not affect every aspect of your health? Another aspect to consider is where the residents of renewed areas were displaced, mostly into ghettos. And I want to jump to the conclusion that we were, when we were forced into ghettos that we, um, we met crime, but it's important to draw the full story or else it would just seem like we were displaced and became criminals. No, that actually feeds into the black criminality trope, which needs to be dispelled. Rather, I'll give you a logical explanation. So when a neighborhood loses its jobs, when it loses its funding to its school and poverty begins to run rapid, we have underground economies created. Underground economies, by the way, are just things like gangs, prostitution, um, drug rings, things of that nature. Those things become prevalent. So a destitution of resources leads anybody that's looking to survive into a life of criminality. So urban renewal, like redlining, influenced all eight social determinants of health um, mentioned in the last episode. And the last policy, crime-free housing ordinances, they mostly make me think about Brian. Brian was a homeless man in Atlanta that I met um, this year, actually. He explained to me that he had been homeless for some years now and that whenever he tried to apply for housing, that his applications itself were denied. And this was due to a 20-year-old misdemeanor on his record. At the time, I didn't know about crime-free housing ordinances, but now I do, and now I understand why he may be still homeless. Um, and by the way, uh, any criminal record misdemeanor especially can affect your chances of getting public and private housing. So he's homeless, which is a health disparity in itself, with racial inequality due specifically to indigenous people and black people, Um the health disparities that follow homelessness um, includes poor mental conditions, poor social connections, and poor physical conditions, amongst other, <laughs> amongst other things. So a great deal of disparity is a cause and a result of homelessness, which these ordinances influence directly. And all of these de jure segregation policies influence racial and economic segregation and inequality, and it affects the way that we experience um, housing and health today. Unfortunately, in the short span of this episode, it's just insufficient for me to properly analyze these policies and give the exact definition as to what they do and um, just the function that they serve in our society and how they affect our health even. Um, Because as as I researched this topic, I found new rabbit holes, new topics, new avenues to discuss how policies have affected health today, health disparities today. Um, I wouldn't be able to give the full story. I wouldn't be able to, 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 to tell the stories of the millions of minorities that have been affected by these three policies alone. And even in my short time studying policies, I've just noticed that there's been a lack of consideration as far as public health when these economic policies are made and I would like to see that change I would like to see public health being weighed in every policy that's created because especially housing policy because housing policy is public health policy how is it how is it not it's a clear correlation with that we have to address the historically racist and discriminatory housing policies 
that we see today that affect how we attain housing and how we experience health and even the crime-free housing ordinance that is still keeping Brian homeless. <sighs> I guess that concludes this episode and my first ever video podcast. I hope y'all enjoyed it. Um, how do y'all feel about this episode? Also, I want to know if you have any story about displacement. Do you live in a crime-filled area or do you live in an area that's filled with poverty or do you live in an area that is filled with illness? Because... <clears throat> Poverty can influence illness, and illness can influence poverty. So it works both ways. I'm just interested in understanding and getting personal stories about um, policy that has affected your health, our health. So if you join me visually, I see you seeing me, and I appreciate it so much. I hope you enjoyed all the visual data, all the visual aspects of the episode. And if you're under the sound of my voice, thank you for joining me, and I definitely influence you to come and join me visually as you're missing out on some things <laughs> in the notes of the episode i have provided a link to the website as well as a link to the podcast as well as the notes from the show which has a lot of research on it um if you wanted to do some more research on these topics yourself i highly recommend that you do that <clears throat> there's also extra content on the website so y'all can find me on ig at not guru underscore i'm also available when i have a podcast spotify um google podcast anchor especially and if you haven't listened to the last episode uh as i suggested earlier i'm gonna suggest you do that again it's a really nice episode um so yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this episode and i will see you next time peace the results it showed that children whose parents own the same home over a span of time were less likely to catch the coming cold when they were intentionally exposed to it so housing stability affects the immune system. Being in a stable house over a long period of time can affect your immune system positively. But when you are moving around place to place, that can negatively affect your immune system. 